This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. And um, there's another action I'd like you to consider. If you just get your pens out, I've got three people for you to send an email to and just a really brief one, just two sentences. I got a message from the people um, up at Galilee Basin, Adrian Baragaba and Marawa Johnson. You might remember we spoke to both of them about the Adani coal mine. Now, they've been doing heroic efforts. They're in a very remote place and getting city people like us on side, people who are listening to this program are living in a big city they need your help up there and um, you might have been to see the Stop Adani Road Show run by 350.org thousands of people went in Sydney, Brisbane Canberra and Melbourne I believe and it's about the same thing it's to join on that idea of stopping Adani and I got a message from um, Adrian Baragaba and he said that they've got a case in court and that Senator George Brand has tried to amend the Native Title Act to foil them and here's what Adrian wrote to me he said now that the Turnbull government's divisive Native Title Amendment Bill is languishing in the Senate, we will redouble our efforts. We will fight this bill and the Adani mine. Our fight is far from over. And he urges us to send a few lines to three members of Parliament. So have you got your pen and paper ready? Please tell these to the three people I'll say to you at the end, please tell them what you think of the Adani coal mine project. Tell them what you think of amending the Native Title Act, which gives land rights to Native people, and amending it to get around the court case brought by the Wangan and Jabalingu people. And tell them that the floods and droughts that we are experiencing will all be made more intense by climate change and that climate change is fueled by coal oil and gas so those are just the sort of things you can write but just write it from the heart they will get the message they we don't want them to amend the native title act so here's the address bill shorten bill dot shorten dot mp at aph dot gov dot au mark dot dreyfus dot mp at aph dot gov dot au and Senator Dodson, it's senator.dodson at aph.gov.au. If you didn't get all that, please contact me at radio team at beyond zero. Oh, it's really like radio team at bze.org.au. That's the email that you can contact us on. 
We're back to the Beyond Zero Mission show and listeners, we're going to change the order tonight. We're going to talk to a farmer up at uh, Golgong. Now, Australia is unique in that our land use generates a high proportion of greenhouse gas emissions. We have a large land mass and a small population. But we could sequester a huge amount of carbon without threatening food production or the economy. The Beyond Zero researchers found that between farming and forestry we can take a lead role in addressing climate change. If only 13% of cleared land, that's already cleared land, was revegetated, we could draw down sufficient carbon to balance out all the uh, land sector emissions. That includes the eucalyptus forests of southeastern Australia, which just needs to be left alone to recover from logging. In previous shows, we've talked about forests, including mangroves, with their wonderful capacity to draw down carbon. We heard last week from activists in Malaysia struggling to prevent more clearing for palm oil plantations, just when Australia seems happy to import as much palm oil as possible, with no questions asked. If on this subject you'd like to read a terrific piece of journalism, look up last Saturday's The Saturday Paper, April 1st, for James Norman's article called Palm Abhor. And so, you know, a lot of people are starting to get onto this. It's, there's an injustice here and there's just something that's got to be reversed. Next week, we're going to look at cattle farming, uh, which is another aspect of Beyond Zero research. But tonight, we're going to talk about food crops. And I hope later we'll get back to Claire uh, in Malaysia because we just couldn't get through to her a minute ago. Our guest is Colin Sice. His farm is called Winona. It's at Golgong, New South Wales. It's a 2000 acre masterpiece built up over several generations since Colin's pioneering ancestors came up on foot to Golgong. That's Henry Lawson country for most of us. Colin is often called on to give workshops about the way he manages his merino sheep and grassland crops without degrading the land. So welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show, Colin. How are you? Good, thank you. <laughs> Sorry for the long intro, <clears throat> but I wanted to fit in the Beyond Zero research that you participated in. And listen, I was very sorry to hear that you lost quite a few hectares in the recent bushfires, and I guess it was a big setback for you and many other farmers up your way. Yes, um, we weren't too bad. We only lost 300 acres um, out of 2,000, but um, but yeah, some of the the, uh, the the farmers nearby they lost a lot of a lot of country and a lot of a lot of animals, a lot of sheep and cattle. Yes, well, Australian farmers don't like to talk about climate change. In my experience, you know, I've talked to people and they they want to protect their land, but they don't like talking about climate change. But they're certainly challenged by things like bushfires, drought, uh, variable rainfall, and declining profitability, maybe salinity, herbicide-resistant weeds I've heard about, and poor soil structure. So how does your... You know, you're famous now for your pasture cropping method you, you and Daryl Clough sort of um, invented. How does that tackle these problems? Um, good question. Uh, in, in relation to climate change, um, uh, I don't have any doubt that, that things are changing. There's, there's no doubt about that and that we have... Uh, you know, what we've done in the last two or three hundred years has um, created that. But um, I don't also see it as a major problem. I think we, we can um, move forward 
uh, we can certainly produce food, but we don't have to, or we shouldn't be destroying our our farms, our environment, and our planet in uh, in the process, which is what's happening with industrial agriculture at the moment. Um, oh, in relation to what you mentioned about pasture cropping. Uh, Daryl and I developed um, a way of um, of planting crops into grasslands, into native grass um, species, yeah, yeah. without killing without killing the grass and growing crops like wheat and oats and many species like that into the grass. Um, found it restores the grassland as well as growing good right. food crops. Right. Listen, um, uh, uh, Colin, we've got someone new with us in our team, radio team, and he's a young writer in Melbourne called Kurt Johnson, and he's um, got a few questions for you as well. So could he just ask you a question now? Could I introduce you to Kurt? Hello, Colin. How's it going? Yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, so I was wondering, I was thinking that uh, Australian farmers, are, they, they're usually a very innovative bunch, and I don't think that gets uh, gets enough coverage in the media. But um, I was wondering, what, what was their reception towards uh, your methods in, uh, in the farming, uh, Australian farming sector? It is really interesting. Um, initially, uh, the, the methods that, that I've adopted here were looked at a bit sideways mm-hmm. um, but the main criticism that I've received is not from farmers but from uh, scientists um, and agronomists uh, that's been the main pro- main thing, uh, many farmers are adopting these techniques now and um, uh, certainly at least, at least 3,000 farmers in Australia and an estimated 3 million acres worldwide now are being, being adopted with um, these methods that regenerate landscapes and soil. Um, so, yeah, it has been reasonably well, well uh, adopted and accepted by farmers, not so much by agronomy people. Yep, yep. But, uh, Colin, you said that to me back in 2014 when we spoke, and you said that they were in fact hostile to your methods, and your methods are very low input, aren't they, with pesticide and, and fertiliser and that, yep. and I wondered, why is that? Is there any, anything in common with the you know, the sort of feeling we have about Parliament, our Parliament not being able to toss over the coal and gas industry. They seem to be, uh, you know, beholden to them. Yep. And is, is it similarly, do you think, that uh, environmentalists are somehow paid up for by the um, agrochemical industry? Is that? I, I think it's very similar, actually. Um, but it does stem from how agriculture and, and agricultural science is taught in universities. Um, it's 40 years behind the times easily in university uh, compared to what's happening on the ground with innovative farmers. Mm. Uh, we need to change it at university levels to start with so that we get agronomists, um, at, at, well, especially agronomists coming out of there that understand what, what we're doing. Well, it's becoming so urgent with climate change. You know, Australia is a net food exporter and we want to keep that foodlands, you know, producing and yielding, but we don't want to sacrifice it for the wrong methods. And I think we talked before about your father having, and your grandfather even, having got the best scientific advice of their time, and yet they sort of flogged the land in a way and uh, it had to be restored by you. So it seems to me very urgent that this message gets through at that level. Yeah. 
It's actually never scientists that, that are the innovators. Scientists only ever follow along behind. Um, it is... Um, in agriculture, it's the farmers themselves. Um, in often in in other things, it's the artistic people that are the innovators. Yeah. Uh, and but yeah, it, it's yeah certainly a, a very misleading to think that scientists are, are leading the way. They're certainly not. Um, they generally plod along behind and try and prove what we're doing is wrong. Well, that's that's terribly disappointing because they have big budgets, if they have budgets at all. And I, in fact, felt that scientists are a bit sort of um, in difficulties themselves, you know, with like CSIRO budgets being cut back and things like that. I thought, oh, well, we need to protect the scientists. But if they're not leading, why, why aren't they? I don't know. I don't think scientists have ever led. Um, maybe people like Albert Einstein did, um, but I think science, scientists have changed to a degree now, in that they're, they're, they aren't creative people. They're, they're not. Um, they're not developing new things. Uh, mm. they, other people do that, and and then they, okay, they they, they will fine tune them. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not wanting to be critical of, of no. scientists, um, but. If we go the other way, no, not the other way, the people that really understand uh, what I'm doing, and not only, only me, but people that are, are working with natural systems, ecologists are, are, are very, very understanding. They, they know what, what we're doing, mm. and they're very, very supportive. Because all really that I'm doing is, is mimicking Mother Nature. Uh, and and uh, I, I found the closer I get to... Uh, mimicking what Mother Nature does, not only the easier it becomes, but more pro- it's far more profitable. Um, everything just falls into place. But yeah. with agriculture, industrial agriculture, we've moved away from that. Mm. Well, the other guest that I'm hoping still we'll be able to talk to later is in Malaysia, but she's a sort of a, um, she goes to poorer countries like the Philippines, like Bangladesh, and supports communities from a justice perspective and a kind of eco, you know, holistic perspective also. And a lot of the things I think that she's found are that um, you know uh, traditional methods are just being sidelined. Seed, uh, whole types of seeds are being lost, and that holistic understanding of farming life, you know, community life in rural areas is actually has suffered a huge blow through the Green Revolution. Yes. Oh, yes, most definitely. Farming generally has... Um, uh, it, it, yeah, it, the Green Revolution has been a disaster um, and it started in, in, in the 1950s. Initially, it may have been well-meaning because in, in the 1950s, they, people were supposedly worried about increasing human population growth and the inability to, to be able to feed everyone. Um, now, some of that Green Revolution, which was chemicals and, and fertiliser and, and all of that stuff, did produce more food, but it's been an ecological disaster. Um, and in reality, it's gone close to to really... Well, there's only one way to say it, and that's stuffing the planet. Mm. Um, ecologically, everything is crashing. Uh, and and it's, it's directly related to that green revolution and, and pesticides and, and, and fertilisers and all of that stuff. Yeah, I read in one of Claire's papers that in 2008 there was a major crisis in uh, you know food production but at the same time those um, agrochemical companies were making trillions in profits 75 percent increase in profits so there's a there's yes. a disconnect there really bad 
Um, look, Kurt's got another question for you, and then we'll come back to me. Uh, yeah, it's interesting your point about uh, food security. Um, I was just wondering, obviously your method in the, in the longer term uh, because of sustainability will provide net a higher yield than that those massive industrial farms. But I'm just wondering in the short term, especially in third world countries where there's an immediate demand for food, uh, which mm. is a problem, I'm just wondering is there a, a transition between your, in, um, your method of farming and the large industrial farms or how do your immediate yields compare? Okay, there is a transition, um, and a lot of the work that I do is, is getting farmers to transition off industrial agriculture to a, a form of agriculture that, that's regenerative. We need to regenerate our landscape while, while, or our farms while, we, while we're producing food. Um, now, uh, but it is not that difficult because we're, we're still incorporating or using some of some of the technology that that uh, industrial agriculture uh, has developed. It's not all bad. Uh, it's so in, in relation to machinery and, and, and machines to, to plant crops and especially zero tool um, technology, and that is a wonderful innovation. So, so some of that we're still we're using. We haven't gone back back to horses or stuff like that yeah. um, now in relation to producing food I, I think we can produce more food with this tech with, with what we're talking about uh, we just need to do it differently and how, how to produce more, more food is, is stacking enterprises on, on the one area of, of, of land uh, growing uh, uh, different things at a, at a different time. In other words, we can stack four or five or ten enterprises mm-hmm. or grow them in, in, or produce, they can be animals and, and crops and many things. Now, for that to work, they need to be financially and, and ecologically mm-hmm. compatible. In other words, well, most of what we do now de- uh, it degrades our landscape. They're certain, certainly not regenerative. And so if they're ecologically compatible, they will regenerate our landscape or regenerate our farms and produce a lot of food and be, be very profitable. Oh, that's great. Um, I, I, another fascinating aspect of what you're doing here is that it it's, has a potential or is becoming a worldwide phenomenon. Uh how specific was what you developed to Australian conditions, or did it was there many modifications that it needed to be uh, applied in other countries? Yes, uh, it, it, basically, all we're doing really is, is, like I said before, is mimicking natural systems. Now, most grasslands or even or pastures go dormant at some time during the during the year like there is a dormant period where, where the grasses don't die but they go to sleep for the winter or they can go to sleep for the summer yeah. and that's a niche we're looking for to plant crops into uh, so different different places around the world will have a, a, a different time when the species that they have go go into some form of dormancy right uh, so that's that's different, uh, but the principles are still the same. Perfect. Okay, Colin, we're going to finish up soon, but um, I'd like to just ask you a little bit about, um, uh, you know, when you speak to farmers, you do a lot of this consultancy, you do workshops. Um, when they talk to you, do they ever say to you things that they would love to adopt these uh, 
new methods, which might be new for them, might require some investment. Um, certainly, if you know they have to revegetate whole parts of their land with trees, for example, that would require uh, you know a lot of money. What incentives do you think they need to get? Um, you know, to be carbon farmers and to manage their land to prevent the worst of climate change. Once they've learned things, but they need some money or some incentives, don't they? I think that would help. Um, land care have been really good over the years doing that, but a lot of that money with the, 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 the present federal government, we have all that, that money's been ta- taken away, most of it anyway. So it's been quite difficult uh, in, in that sense. But in saying that, uh, farm, farmers can do a lot of things in relation to restoring their grasslands and restoring their, their, their uh, uh, soils and farms. One thing that we need to understand is that our farms should function as ecosystems. Uh, when we start to do that, and when you do that without a lot of cost, we can, we can, we can transition it to that. Uh, then things start to tr- fall into place. Then we get more grass, grasses growing. It, it's actually plants, plants that that will fix soil, fix farmers' pockets as well, uh, but and restore our landscape. It's not fertilizer and pesticides. Yeah. Um, it, it's plants and just plant diversity. Yeah. And that, that's a big key to it. Oh, look, it's wonderful to talk to you again. I think. Um yeah, you're really onto the great thing. And if people could just go and see your farm and see how the, the how it just goes in this smooth pattern throughout the year, you've got something on the land at all times, and you know you are mimicking nature there, and it's on quite a big scale. I, w- I would love to see more people adopt it. So let's hope there's a lot of people listening, and eventually these messages get through. Um, that's enough. That's as much time as we've got now, Colin. But thank you so much for uh, participating with us tonight. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Colin. Thank you. Uh, now, listeners, we're, uh, we're going to have to leave Claire Westwood till next week, I think. But we've got an interview here with completely different subjects, so we changed tunes completely. It's Professor Mark Diesendorf. Now, I interviewed him a few weeks ago in Sydney, and he's an absolute expert on energy efficiency, um, energy, you know, the 100% renewable energy vision that Beyond Zero Emissions has been pushing for so many years now. And he got interested in this South Australian blackout that happened, and so I went up to talk to him at Hornsby, and he gave me a lovely interview. So you're very lucky to get this earlier than planned, and we'll have more about farming next week. Thanks, Andy. (laughs) Our focus tonight is on South Australia. It's a case study in how to get reliable energy 100% from renewables, and our guide will be Associate Professor Mark Diesendorf from the University of New South Wales. He's the author of Sustainable Energy Solutions for Climate Change, and I often see him at climate gatherings where he is an honoured climate activist. His recent article in the conversation was called How South Australia Can Function Reliably While Moving to 100% Renewable Power. And it caught my attention when he said, here are some things we can do in the short term to create a reliable system. So welcome, Mark. Oh, thanks, Vivian. Great to be with you. Let's start with that emotive word, reliable. Take us back to the recent blackouts in South Australia. Because even as the mega storm was raging, the enemies of renewables came out saying that wind power was unreliable. Is it? 
Well, wind power alone wouldn't be enough to run a whole state or national electricity system. You need a mix of different types of renewable energy sources to balance one another. Now, as far as the great blackout in South Australia in September 2016, it was, of course, caused by wind, but wind in the form of tornadoes. And those tornadoes knocked out three major transmission lines and caused a partial blackout of the state. Now, there's a 10% truth in that wind was involved a little because the rest of the state was knocked out because the operators of the electricity system, the Australian energy market operator, didn't know about the settings on the wind farms. There are certain settings that have to be adjusted that determine how many faults, how many shocks the system can um, manage, and those settings weren't all adjusted appropriately. They've now been readjusted. So if that those settings had been adjusted, uh, there wouldn't have been a statewide blackout, but there still would have been the partial blackout resulting from the loss of the transmission lines. Well, in the short term, you know, what is needed to integrate more renewable energy, let's think of solar and wind energy, other types of renewable energy, into the grid, because we're hoping that this will be an accelerated transformation fairly soon, aren't we? Well, that's right. And uh, according to our studies at the University of New South Wales, it would be possible for South Australia to run entirely on renewable sources of electricity, but it can't be done without a strategy without a plan because at present everything's being driven by the market and the market is stupid and blind. So what's happening is South Australia uh, is still having more and more wind farms being built and they're proposing solar PV farms uh, to be built and they really need to modify that strategy with other renewable energy sources to balance the variability of wind and solar photovoltaic, solar PV. So they can't keep putting in more and more wind and solar PV without this balancing. And my article was really about how in the near future and the medium future they can in fact balance the system with other renewable energy sources so they can go to 100% averaged over the year 100% renewable electricity. Well, I'd like you to paint us a picture. Um, Beyond Zero Emissions did some research about Port Augusta some time back, and they're still, everyone is very still keen that something will happen at Port Augusta because it's connected to the grid, it's an ideal position. But they found that to replace the coal-fired power station at Port Augusta, they would need 90 wind turbines and six of those solar power towers with molten salt storage. You know, we've seen the picture on all the Beyond Zero materials there desirable kind of uh, solar farm. Now I know you and your team did that work for the Conservation Council of Australia. Could you paint us a picture of what that huge potential is in renewable energy in South Australia and how, what would it look like? You know, how many turbines, how many farms, what would be the strategy that you would like to see? Well, uh, the first strategy, as I said, is to balance the variable renewable energy, wind and solar PV, 
with more reliable, less variable, what we call dispatchable renewable energy. That is, dispatchable means it can deliver power when required, and it needs to be flexible in operation, so it can be turned on and off very quickly. So indeed, one of the options is concentrated solar thermal power with thermal storage, for example, in molten salt, and I would very much like to see an initial power station built near Port Augusta as part of the balancing of the variable renewables. Another option is what we call seawater pumped hydro. Now, normally in Australia, hydroelectricity is based on rivers, and uh, but South Australia hasn't got any rivers with a strong fall in height and a strong flow. However, there is potential to pump, to use excess wind and solar at times when the demand for electricity is low, to use that excess renewable energy to pump seawater up into small reservoirs near the coast, uh, up in the hills there. And then during the peak demand periods, it's possible to run the water downhill again Mm. through uh, turbines to generate hydroelectricity. And that's something that is also being currently investigated. And in fact, Professor Andrew Blakers at the ANU is currently performing a study on the potential for seawater pumped hydro and other off-river pumped hydroelectric storage, uh, which uh, is very exciting. So that's pumped hydro is the second option. The third option is what they already have, but with a change in fuel. Now, South Australia actually has a lot of gas turbines, which are basically jet engines, and currently those gas turbines burn natural gas. But gas turbines, jet engines are very flexible technology, and they can burn renewable liquids and gases as well, without any significant modification. They can burn biofuels, if there is a source of biofuels, and that may not be the case in South Australia. But another option is during periods of high wind and sunshine, excess renewable energy that would otherwise be dumped or used to do pumped hydro, Mm. that excess renewable energy could be used to split water by electrolysis into hydrogen and oxygen. And then the hydrogen is a fantastic fuel that can be used either directly or even better, it can be combined with nitrogen from the air to form ammonia, and that can be used as a fuel in gas turbines, as a renewable fuel. Is this um, demonstrated anywhere in the world? Are any countries going down this path? It hasn't. uh, Well, yes, with hydrogen, but ammonia hasn't been used, as far as I know, commercially yet. But it has been tested in the lab, and there's no doubt that ammonia can be combusted in these jet engines and the beauty is that neither ammonia nor hydrogen when they're burnt produces carbon dioxide right the hydrogen just produces water and the ammonia produces nitrogen basically releases the nitrogen that was originally trapped there which is not a greenhouse gas either so gas turbines with appropriate fuels 
can also play a role. And our computer simulations of the whole national electricity market find that you only need to use these gas turbines for a tiny percentage of the year, so about 2%. Yeah. of the annual electricity coming from the gas turbines in that system just to fill in the gaps at times maybe on a summer evening after, when it's not very windy on those occasions mm-hmm. then the gas turbines can be brought on as well so there's a, this whole mix of supply options to balance the variable wind and solar PV. Concentrated solar thermal with thermal storage, gas turbines and seawater pumped hydro. Mm. Can I add that? Uh, Yes, yes, go on. (laughs) I can also add, of course, that there's options on reducing the demand. Yes, I've got a question about that. Just for the listeners, their minds might be still with me reeling at the thought of ammonia and hydrogen being used in a... Um, you know, <laughs> what was it previously a, ga- gas, a gas turbine but I'm definitely against gas I've heard a lot about gas being quite um, climate effective and um, so the less of that but um, I still want to d- come back to the idea of the peak you know these peaks mm. we've had a few with uh, heat waves and that one in the storm there still seems to be a problem around the times of peak demand and I think our, our system a lot of people are feeling rather panicky about our system that's why the politicians have been able to see that panic with pointing it to renewables and you know people feel panicky are we going to be able to keep the lights turned on sort of thing but as climate disruption gives us intensified heat waves um, and other forms of you know need for electricity how can we manage that peak demand better yeah well that's the key question really there used to be a lot of nonsense talked about requiring baseload replacing baseload power stations with renewables but wind and solar pv can do that the real challenge is meeting those rare peaks in demand particularly on a really hot summer evening when everyone turns their air conditioning on Mm. but also occasionally on a on a winter evening after an overcast day Mm. when maybe on occasion there isn't much wind so it's those peaks in demand that only last for two or two to three hours so immediately we can say that coal-fired power stations and nuclear stations and any sort of baseload station is useless for meeting the peaks because they're not flexible enough in operations you can't just ramp them up and down in output so but the technologies i mentioned the supply technologies uh, are all flexible rapid response technologies Mm. seawater pumped hydro concentrated solar thermal with thermal storage Uh, batteries of course also becoming cheaper Now, also, it's possible to cut the demand during the peak periods. And, in fact, this is what was done in New South Wales quite recently when we would have had a major blackout during the heat wave, but the energy market operator switched off one of the one of the smelters or part of one of the aluminium smelters, which immediately saved us hundreds of megawatts. And, in fact... An aluminium smelter can be switched off for up to an hour Mm. without damaging the smelting process because basically you've got these Mm. huge tanks of molten aluminium Mm. holding a lot of heat that's heated with electricity. Mm. Now, of course, we can extend that whole idea of dropping off people for short periods of time without damaging things. So, for example, in my house, I'd be very happy to sign a contract with my electricity supplier that occasionally they're allowed to drop off 
my refrigerator, my hot water system, which happens to be an electric heat pump system, mm-hmm. or um, my air conditioner for half an hour. Yeah. And, of course, if a lot of people do that, they can roll those across a large community so that there's never anyone, never the whole community dropped off. I really like that idea. I'll tell you why. I don't come from the scientific and mathematical background like you. I'm much more from the humanities, and I really worry about the political and social will to have this renewable transformation. And I think that kind of electricity rationing, which you could reframe it as rationing, would put people... People will voluntarily do that, as you say. They agree to not take electricity for a while when there's a crisis. I think that would activate or trigger the sort of citizenship model. So people who are also voters would start to think, this is right, I can I can fit in with the crisis. I can understand why the energy market's asking me to do this. I think it would sort of activate people as not more knowledgeable about where their energy comes from. Do you, do you feel that there's something needed in that, like behavioural change? Because this thing about energy efficiency, just turning off the lights here occasionally, it's not really enough. Well, um, for a start, I I wouldn't use the term rationing because this would be a deal. People who signed the contracts to be dropped off occasionally would get benefits. The daily, for example, the daily supply charge for electricity would be reduced. Um, So it would be a commercial transaction and they could choose to do or not to take part in that. So it, it, it does require some participation, but... To some extent, it is also like energy efficiency because it can be done now with modern technology entirely automatically. Mm. Uh, Once people have signed a contract, one could fit a small switch into the the hot water circuit, the air conditioning circuit, into the... um, uh, air conditioning, what else have I mentioned? Refrigeration. Refrigeration. And that uh, switch could be triggered remotely, either by the customer mm. who wants to save money because the price of electricity might rise during those peaks. I think that's inevitable in the future or by the utility supplying the power. Mm. So within constraints, it could be automatically dropped out. It would be very easy. And the citizen participation Mm. uh, comes from deciding to sign a contract, which would actually benefit both the customer and the electricity supplier. Mm. And that's sort of a long-term thing, whereas rationing is usually just for a short emergency, isn't it? So I just like the rationing because it, it reminds me of wartime and I feel that we, we should be, you know, we've declared, we should be declaring a climate emergency. But um, that's just me being impatient. We're talking to um, Associate Professor Mark Diesendorf and I was trying to focus on South Australia, which you, you had done a study about. And um, let's come back to the South Australian blackout. On the radio, I heard one man speaking about his experience and he had a battery to store his rooftop solar energy. He was cosy and warm and watched TV all through the storm. And I wondered, do you think that governments should give incentives to private homes and businesses to get this sort of battery storage at the domestic level? Well, I I do think some kind of fair pricing is necessary. And the way they can do it is to gradually increase the price of electricity to to retail customers uh, during peaks in demand if supply is low. And so that means that people with batteries and solar 
uh, can um, self-consume electricity during those peak periods and save more money. And it also means if they have excess power in the battery, they they would be paid more in terms of a feeding tariff during those peak periods. At present, feeding tariffs are fixed in amount and also for many retail customers still the electricity price is fixed Mm -hmm. over the whole day. But I think it's sort of inevitable that, that, um, that those prices should vary with time of day or more precisely with supply and demand of electricity to give people the right messages to reward them if they have solar and batteries um, or even if they don't have solar. When batteries become cheaper, you can still buy batteries, store some power during off-peak periods from the grid and then use that power from the batteries maybe in the evening when you need to put on the air conditioner and do the cooking and all that. So we're moving into a a much smarter electricity system potentially where we have distributed sources of power, we have demand varying as well as supply varying and, and demand being able to be modified. We have a wide mix of different renewable energy sources in the system and I believe that South Australia has the potential to demonstrate that to the rest of mainland Australia uh, by moving to 100% renewable electricity. Why is South Australia especially favoured? Well, South Australia has the best wind potential Mm. in Australia and although it hasn't been fully developed yet, it also has huge huge solar potential. Mm. And so that's the reason why, for example, when um, government policies created a lot of investor uncertainty for investing in renewable energy, it was the ACT Mm. with its policy of so-called reverse auctions for large-scale renewables, medium and large-scale, which actually uh, drove new wind farms in South Australia and also in Victoria. And in fact, right now, new wind farms are being built in South Australia and Victoria as a result of the ACT's reverse auction scheme. It's been working very well, and each so-called reverse auction where the lowest price wins in the auction instead of the highest price, these reverse auctions in South Australia, sorry, in the ACT, have driven down the price of solar power and wind power in Australia. Yes. We had uh, Simon Corbell on this program uh, just earlier on, and uh, listeners might like to listen to the podcast if you just put in the name Simon Corbell because that, that was most interesting about those reverse auctions. Okay, so you can see South Australia satisfying all its needs, 100% from renewables. There's also these interconnectors with Victoria, and you suggested there might eventually be one up through Broken Hill into New South Wales. Is there some potential there for South Australia to produce more than 100% of its, you know, to to export energy? As they, I think in Europe they do that with Denmark and Germany, don't they? They export energy all the time. Yeah, absolutely. As uh, South Australia's got such huge and wind and wind and solar potential that it could export to the main areas of electricity demand which are the eastern states and right now it only has two fairly weak connections to Victoria and is not connected to any other state. Mm. Now the national electricity market which 
starts in far north Queensland and goes down through New South Wales and Victoria and then out on a limb to South Australia and Victoria is a very long skinny system and it would benefit the whole system to have a direct connection from South Australia through Broken Hill to the main grid in eastern New South Wales. That would also mean that South Australia could sell a lot more renewable electricity mm. to New South Wales. It would mean that with this new uh, transmission line that new solar and wind power stations in western New South Wales could also feed into the grid. And furthermore, if hot rock geothermal power ever becomes viable mm -hmm. in in South Australia, in which is really Central Australia, mm. it could be fed, linked to Broken Hill and then fed into that main transmission spine mm. to the eastern states. So there is sense in considering uh, building this link, but one has to say that it would be expensive and it probably would take 10 years to build. Mm. So the other options that I've mentioned before are the ones that need to be addressed more urgently. Yeah. But if a decision is made to build a transmission link between South Australia and New South Wales, then it needs to start pretty soon because mm. they have to get the easement mm. for the transmission line. It's, it's a long process yeah. and, and it would certainly benefit the whole grid system. It must be rather irritating for someone like you who's done all this detailed research and published and you've been doing this for many years um, to see the political process parallel to it, which seems to be stirring people up to be quite ignorant about renewable energy, whereas 10 years ago they were informed. Well, uh, it is irritating, but on the positive side, public opinion polls show that there is still extremely strong support for the growth of renewable energy in Australia. So we've been hearing from some politicians fairly ridiculous statements trying to put renewable energy down, trying to slow its growth, and of course attempts in, in changing policies to try and, for example, uh, force the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to fund coal-fired power stations, mm. but I don't think they'll be successful. So yes, it is irritating, and I think those who are pushing these ridiculous directions will end up damaging themselves politically mm. in the long run, because really uh, they have low credibility. And if we look overseas, we see a uh, country like Denmark, which is almost at 50% uh, renewable energy now, variable renewable energy, mm. wind, because mm. they haven't got much in the way of solar potential. Mm. Uh, we see two North German states which are operating at over 100% renewable energy, but they are joined mm. to their neighbours with uh, high capacity transmission lines, which makes it easier than it would be for South Australia at present. But we can see it happening. We can see it happening in California. We can see the huge growth of wind power in Texas even, the oil state. So despite the actions by various politicians in Australia and Trump in the United States, I think that they can't really stop the growth of renewable energy, but they can slow it a bit. Mm. It's the slowing that's the problem, isn't it? Because climate change is so urgent. And I'd like you to summarise now um, anything more you'd like to say. You know, uh, uh, in the big context, I just tell you why I spoke to someone this morning at a rally, and he said, I don't think we're going to make it. And this is a person who. You know, he's 
been an activist for a long time in a certain sector of society and he just I don't think we're going to make it I can't see how it will happen and I said that's the trouble we can't see it you have to somehow keep going as you do in wartime you don't think it'll ever work that you'll win but someone wins so well how, what do you see well I'm a I'm a long-term optimist and a short-term <laughs> pessimist yeah. so I think that we will see Australia transitioning predominantly to renewable energy and South Australia becoming a hundred percent renewable electricity but I don't think it'll occur in time to avoid much more serious climate impacts that we are already experiencing now now I hope I'm wrong uh, I hope somehow uh, there will be action galvanised but we can still see the vested interests some of the electricity utilities the fossil fuel industries slowing down the process through the politicians we can still see uh, the Murdoch press and the Australian Financial Review uh, being very uh, hostile to renewable energy and so it's going to be a long hard struggle but when I see the quality of the people involved in it the young people that are now becoming involved I feel pretty optimistic that we can do it. Okay, well, thank you for contributing to the Beyond Zero Missions show because we try to be an educational force and really it's the forces of ignorance, you know. Welcome back, listeners. Um, I'm so grateful to my team tonight because we've done incredible fancy footwork here, unbeknown to any of you, I hope, but we couldn't get Claire on, but we're hoping to listen to her next week. Now, we only have one listener who regularly sends in comments to me. So, salut Babette. I know she's listening. Thanks to our guests tonight, uh, Colin Size up in Golgong and Mark Diesendorf in Sydney. Thanks to the team, Teddy and Jody on promoting the show, Andy on the panel, and Kurt, who participated tonight and who does a lot of research for us. Thanks to Roger, who will do the podcast, and my name is Vivian Langford. I hope you tune in again next week. We're going to hear from a Queensland cattle farmer, and I'm hoping that her phone connection will work, even though she might be a bit underwater, and an expert also on blue carbon. We'll also hopefully get Claire Westwood back talking about food security in Asia. And now it's time for Save Albert Park. But You're listening this, to 3CR Radio. Before we go, just don't forget to write to Bill Shorten and Senator, um, who did I say, Senator... You know, I gave you some names at the beginning of the program. Senator Dodson, Mark Travis and Bill Shorten, please write to them. Just say you've heard about the Adani Coal Mine and the Native Title Act and really they shouldn't amend the Native Title Act so it makes it easy for Adani to get all that land over the dead body of these uh, people who live there, the Wangan and Jabalinga. They fought such a brave fight and they're living in a remote area and we in the big cities must help them. So bill.shorten.mp at aph.gov.au The others, if you didn't get them write to me at radio team at bzde.org.au and I'll send you the three uh, emails. Thanks very much everybody and good night. See you next week. <laughs>